Well, tonight we come together as a body of believers. This morning we preached on Acts chapter 2, and we said the church started, and God gave us the power of the Holy Spirit, and as such, that's to empower his people. So could we stand together, please, this evening? And I want us to have a time of prayer. Can we all stand, please? And I want us to uh, get our hearts focused. Tonight I sense sort of a deadness in the service. I don't know if it's uh, you had too much sleep in the afternoon, but uh, we need to get our hearts focused and let God speak. We're talking about a new Jerusalem and a new heaven and a new earth. And um, I'd like us to uh, have prayer, and then we're going to stay standing and read the scripture together, and then we'll be seated. But let's get ourselves focused and lean into it. Um, some of us are, are hugging the outside walls, and uh, we need to sort of sitting on the edge like your observers. We need to get ourselves focused and uh, brought together. And if we're going to get something from the Word, it's not going to happen because by accident, it's because we lean into the Word. We come expecting God to speak. And um, one of my jobs as a pastor, when I can feel it's not that way, is to say, let's get with it. And so let's pray that way together and ask God to meet with us. Heavenly Father, tonight we're sort of in a lax spirit, and our singing was dull, and our spirits, Lord, have been distracted already this evening. And I pray that whether it's COVID uh, that's causing this, or we're just tired, it's summer doldrums, or I don't know, Father, may you give us a sense of the power of your spirit. Lord, we preach today out of Acts 2. And when your spirit is there, people are saved and lives are changed and there's amazing wonders that are performed. And so, Father, we pray that you clear our hearts of the world, clear our hearts of the cares of this world, the fear, oh Lord, the fear that's gripped the heart of your church. I pray that you'd help us not to follow and be timid and follow the fear because you are not the author of fear, but of love and of a sound mind, Father, and of that which is good and healthy. And we pray tonight that we'd have a healthy service, uh, a service where your spirit is and where the spirit of God is, there is freedom. So, Lord, we would ask it, we claim it, we beg it. And, Lord, we're on a good subject tonight. That we switch gears to a beautiful promise of eternity where all the things of this world are passed away and a new heaven and a new earth are there for us. So, Lord, I ask your help. And to be with us tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. If you reach down and grab your Bibles, please, and let's look at Revelation chapter 21, and we're going to read out loud together um, the first eight verses. I'll read the first verse, you read the second verse. I'll read the third all the way till we get to the eighth verse. We'll read that one together. And um, remember to pause at the commas, bigger pause at the periods. Don't run ahead of each other. Uh, the idea is unity not how good you read better than anybody else, all right? So we're in Revelation chapter 21, and I will start the first verse. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God.
And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son together. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Thank you. You may be seated. As we read into this passage tonight, we've gone through the chapter before, and let's remember two things. We have come into this uh, great white throne. The great white throne has judged all those that are not saved to be cast into the lake of fire. The books were open, and the books of opportunities, the books of sins, the books of our deeds of our lives, the books of works are all opened, and the book of life is finally opened, and and you, if you're at this great white throne, then your deeds, your own handwriting, as it were, was against you, and that's where you are cast, in the lake of fire. Then last week, we went back to Second Peter, and I'd like to have you keep your finger in uh, Revelation. Would you go back with me and revisit Second Peter? For we find that the old earth is passed away. And so let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3, and let's just remind ourselves of that passage of Scripture. I'm not going to re-preach it tonight. It says in verse 10, and the day of the Lord will come. That's a promise, isn't it? It will come as a thief in the night. That means it could come pretty quick. You don't expect it, a time you don't, you're not looking for it. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. And we discuss those words. It appears like God, in some form or another, says to the elements almost like, let go of your electrical bonds. And the earth just melts and looks almost like some sort of a nuclear uh, uh, incident takes place and the earth is dissolved and melted as we know it. Look at verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, melted, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And that was the question then that we had last week for ourselves, seeing that this world is not my home and it's going to pass away and there's nothing you can take with you and there's nothing that's going to be left that's not going to be dissolved. No matter how big a monument, how much money you leave behind, it's all going to be gone. What manner of man ought to you be right now on this earth? How are you living your life? And he said then in verse 12, looking for... And we talked about, we look for the, and haste to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember we said there was a crown given for those that look for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, uh, looking for the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, Wherein dwelleth righteousness. And I want us to dwell on that thought tonight. What's going to dwell in the new heaven and the new earth? 
There's going to be no sin. Unrighteousness does not dwell in this new heaven and this new earth. So let's go please back over now to the book of Revelation chapter 21 and we'll pick up with that thought. Revelation chapter 21. Chapter 21, and these last two chapters of Revelation, there are seven new things that are announced. There's a new heaven. There's a new earth. There's a new people of God that are formed. There's a new Jerusalem that comes down, a new temple, a new light. And then in chapter 22, there is a new paradise flowing with a water, a river of the water of life flowing out, uh, out of, from Christ's throne. These are seven new things that are announced in this new heaven, this new earth, and this new paradigm for us. And as we come to chapter 21, it's really a shift in atmosphere. Boy, we've had Christ dealing with this earth. He's been bringing into judgment. It's, it's the crop being brought in. It's being put in the crucible of the, the wrath of God. And it's being squished like the grape juice out. And, and out comes the wrath of God upon the people. And, and then it's that great white throne. And the old earth is destroyed. But now change the scene. The curtain's drawn. You ever been to a play where they have like, okay, you have sort of an intermission. The lights flicker. You come back in. And now the curtain goes back up and you have whole new scenery. And that's sort of what we have happen in chapter 21. You have a whole new stage. You have the Lord making a new heaven and a new earth. It's different. It's not the same as it used to be. You and I could not really understand and appreciate a world without sin. A world without the sin nature. A world without the curse upon it. Everything that we're used to revolves around a cursed nature. And yet tonight we're going to go back in the book of Genesis and remember what was God's desire in the beginning of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. As he created mankind, he came down in the evening to walk with them. And that's what God wants to do. You know, God wants to walk with you and me. He wants to fellowship. But even in our time, we can walk with God in our heart and we can fellowship with him in the word and the Holy Spirit. But in this time, we're going to find that God comes down and walks among men again. And it's going to be just like it was back in the Garden of Eden. It's amazing to see what God's going to do. And this is that new heaven, that new earth, that new Jerusalem that's going to be discussed. So I saw a new heaven. This is probably about the seventh or eighth time that John has said in the book of Revelation, I saw, I saw, I personally saw, I saw. He is verifying this is not just something I was told. He said, I saw this with my own eyes. This is something that God is going to do among men. I saw this. And so what did he see? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. These are not a made-over new earth. These are not a reformed new earth. And like, in other words, uh, uh, we have an election and the Republicans are in, the Democrats are out, the Democrats are in, the Republicans are out. We have a new administration and some people are fired, policies are changed, but it's really the same buildings and the same old, you know, same old structure. That's not the kind of thing we're talking about here. We're talking about brand new. It's a new heaven. It's a new day. It's a new earth. Things are truly different now. And so this is going to set up eternity for us 
with a new heaven and a new earth. And it says, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And that's what we talked about last week, Second Peter chapter 3. And it says, there was no more sea. Two interpretations of no more sea. Listen to this closely because this is important. One is that literal, straightforward, in the new earth, there may just be no big bodies of oceans and, you know, Lake Erie and, and Lake Ontario and, and the Mediterranean Sea and talking about that. That's very possible, a, a good interpretation. I lean to a different interpretation, and you can disagree with me on this. But how many times in the book of Revelation it says that out of the sea came this and out of the sea came that. And we said it wasn't talking about they went to the bottom and they found Atlantis and they brought somebody up out of that sea. They were talking about an, a paradigm of sin. There was a, a, all the way back from old Babylonianism. Remember we talked about that a little bit? That old uh, idea of the nations rebelling against God. And I lean to the interpretation that there is no more curse and there's no more rebellion. There's no more sea on the earth. Satan and the beast and the antichrist and the false prophet, they all have their power in the sea. And I personally believe when it says there's no more sea, it's more referring to there's a, a sea change in this world. It's a different spirit in this world. There's no more resisting God every time you turn around. It's different now. Now, you can disagree with me, and that's fine. You say there's no more water, big bodies like that, and there are those that hold to that interpretation, and they say that the peoples of the world that will populate. Can you imagine, is what, three-fourths or four-fifths of the earth is covered by water today? And can you imagine if we took that same land mass and allowed it to be productive and in different ways, how it would change a new world? And so there are those that take that interpretation and go down that way. Either way, there's no more sea, and there's no more resistance to God's program, and it's a new paradigm. So was a new heaven, there's a new earth. The first heaven, the first uh, uh, earth are passed away, and there is no more sea. I take the interpretation, there's a no more resistance underneath the surface anymore. Verse 2, and I, John, saw. Do you notice that's the second time? Verse 1, he says, I saw. Notice he said, I, John, saw. It sort of sounds like he's on, on, uh, on trial, doesn't it? I, Richard Butts, do swear and swallow me, tell the truth, you know, put my Bible on, hand on the Bible. That's sort of the idea you get with I, John, saw. He is verifying his own character, laying it on the ground for us to see here. I, John, saw. And what does he see? The first thing he sees is a holy city. You know, often when I've read this, I've just said, okay, it's the holy city, Jerusalem, New Jerusalem. But a lot of the commentators make much of the word holy. And if you mark your Bible, would you circle that word holy? Because it's not a normal city. It's a holy city. We said it's a city that's unparalleled. God's going to dwell in this city. Amen? This is a city where Jesus is the light of this city. This is a city without sin. This is a holy city. And often we forget what the word holy means. Holy means totally separated from sin, doesn't it? Are we not a holy people under God? Sanctified, particular, his uh, uh, peculiar people were holy unto him. Here is a city that's marked by its character of being God's dwelling place. It's a holy city. 
And can you imagine, instead of going to New York City or Los Angeles or uh, Detroit or downtown Houston and all the stuff that, you ever been there after night and in these places? As soon as the sun sets, what's it like in these cities? Are you out there? What's it like after dark in these cities? I tell you, it's terrible. It's scary. It's sinful. I mean, you if you if you if you haven't been in a place like this after dark, you say, "What am I doing here after dark? I don't belong here. I better make sure I'm in the light. I got lots of people with me, and I got my keys ready, and I got my little alarm ready because somebody could jump out and, and mug me and all that." Can you imagine a city where you could walk and not be worried? It's a holy city. A city that's truly filled with righteousness. And you don't have to have to worry about um, locking your doors. You don't have to worry about somebody stealing your car. I mean, all these other things. It's a holy city. It's an amazing place. It's a wonderful place to dwell. And do you know this is the place that you're going to dwell? This is your home. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I believe that this is the place. This is the bride of Christ. This is going to be made up of God's holy people. I believe that you and I will dwell in this city. What a wonderful thing to think that I'm going to dwell in this whole holy city, and it's called New Jerusalem. There's three Jerusalems mentioned in the Bible. There's the Jerusalem we think of that's the, you know, where, uh, uh, where the tabernacle, where the temple was built and, and all the things that are going on there. Then there's the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem in heaven. And then there we have this new Jerusalem that descends up out of heaven, uh, out of the heavens and comes down. And this is a holy city. Look at verse 3, please. I'm sorry, verse 2 again. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Now, there are three heavens. When we think of the word heaven in the Bible, we have to sort the heavens into three different categories. We have the heaven where God dwells. That heaven is unchangeable. That is a beautiful, holy place. It's God's dwelling place for all eternity. That's uh, all the other things that are there. Then there's the heavens where you think of the stars are out there, Venus and Pluto and, and our solar system and all that kind of stuff. But often when we think of the heavens, we think of the heavens around the earth, the atmosphere around the earth. So there are three, the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven where God lives. And so he says here, I saw coming out of the heaven, and it says uh, she was as a prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, that just, a lot of the commentators bring out this idea. This is about the prettiest way you could describe something. You've been to a wedding? You're sitting there waiting for the thing to start, and you're all sort of waiting to look in the back doors wherever that bride's going to come in, and finally the piano or the organ or the orchestra or somebody finally hits the right chord, and they go... Dun, dun, da, da, and you all turn and you look, and there the back door is open, and, and here comes this beautiful bride. I mean, she's all adorned. She's got her halo on. I mean, she's got her, her all the different things, and she's ready, and she's, uh, she's makeuped up, and I mean, she's as beautiful as you could ever make her, and she sort of floats down the aisle. Amen. I can remember when that happened in my life 40-some years ago. I stood right in front of the church. I remember the doors opened, and I saw my beautiful bride. And I remember I wanted to focus and see nothing else. My eyes were upon her. The most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. I'm earning points, people. 
Okay, all right, okay, I'm really working on this, okay? This is the image of the New Jerusalem. In John's limited vocabulary, how could you describe this New Jerusalem? It's just like that bride coming down from heaven. All perfect in everything that you can imagine in your dreams, as it were. This is, ladies, can you understand this, okay? This is, this is, this is the new Jerusalem coming our way. She is adorned as a bride for her husband, ready to come. In verse 3 it says, And I heard a great voice out of the heaven. We aren't told whose voice it is, but we say there is a voice that John hears out of heaven, and it says this, Behold... The tabernacle of God is with men. Now this, you talk about a change. God, we said this just a moment ago, is now going to dwell with his people. My tabernacle is with God, with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Notice five things that are mentioned here. First of all, it says there's the tabernacle of God coming down. And so this new Jerusalem comes down to be among us. This is God's dwelling place on earth, this new Jerusalem, where God is now going to manifest himself in this new Jerusalem. So the tabernacle of God is now with man. And then it says, and he will dwell with them. So now God is going to walk among mankind and be just like he was way back in the Garden of Eden. So could you take your Bibles and go back to Genesis, please? And let's just review what was at the beginning. Genesis, please. Chapter 3. Hang on a second, lost my, my marking here. Hang on just a second. I, it's been a while since I've allowed that to happen. Let's start, please, if you will, please, in Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord, walk, God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Can you imagine if every night you got home from work, and you and your wife, you and your husband went out to walk and you were looking to meet, meet up with God. Would you look forward to that? And it says here, the, he went out, they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord called unto Adam and he said unto them, where are you? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? What tree was that? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
For the moment that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Satan had come along in chapter 2 and tempted Eve, and she, out of naivety, was swayed by him. She went and gave it to Adam, and Adam, it makes it clear in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, had full cognizance that if he ate, he was in disobedience. And as our federal head, he disobeyed God at that point. And so God's going to have to deal with him. And uh, you notice in verse 11, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree? Whereof I commanded thee, thou shouldst not eat. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me, be with me. She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. He's trying to make excuses for himself, is he not? And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me. They blamed Satan. And I did eat. And we know then God curses, verse 14, the serpent. Verse 15, he puts enmity between uh, the woman and the, and the seed of man. And in verse 16, then women have the curse of, of childbearing, and she's going to be underneath her husband's authority. In verse 17, Adam is cursed with the sweat of his brow. And then finally, in verse 18 and 19, they're going to be returned to the dust. They are going to die. I get the impression up to this point, maybe man wasn't going to die. That's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? But you take the lifespan of these Old Testament characters, a lot of them were in the 900s. Adam himself lived to be 930. I really don't know if I'd like to live 930 years, 60-some years, and I'm already tired of it. I mean, can you imagine 930 years? Methuselah, 969 years, and Noah lived to be a ripe old age before the flood and all the different things. I mean, they lived long, long lives. We get the idea that God did not intend for our bodies to decay. Sin and death are, are all part of the curse that comes upon this earth. And so finally in verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Verse 21, Adam, uh, they made coats, and there was uh, the example of covering our sins like Jesus would cover our sins. And in verse 22, um, the Lord said, God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove him out of, drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And notice here, what was God keeping them from eating of? That tree of life. And we're going to touch base back with it. Go back to now to Revelation chapter 21. So we're in verse 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will be with them. So God's temple, his tabernacle is with us, and God is going to tabernacle with us. That means God's going to walk in our midst. That's hard for us to comprehend. And they shall be his people. God will say, this is my family. He's going to claim us. 
We are going to truly be his peculiar people. And it says, God himself shall be with him. And you notice it says, doesn't say God's going to be with him. God himself, very much emphasizing, this is not God's representative. God is not sending some priest. God himself shall dwell with his people. And then it says there, and he will be their God. There won't be any other gods. There won't be some high places in the mountains. There won't be anybody else that's worshipped on this earth. God is whom we will worship. So we notice those five things. Look at verse 4. And then God does something in this new heaven and in this new earth and this new Jerusalem. It's very wonderful. And we look forward to this one day. It says, and God shall wipe away all tears. What do tears represent? All the hardnesses and the heartaches of life. You ever have tears? I mean, just something comes your way and your heart is broken and the floodgates of your eyes are open and maybe all night long you cry, maybe two or three days long you cry, maybe for weeks you cry. You just Every time you turn around, you're sorrow. God says he's going to wipe away. And the idea doesn't mean he's going to continually wipe away. There are not going to be any more tears. Isn't it just kind of keeps coming with a, a little rag and dab and that's your tears? Okay, it's okay, it's okay. God's going to take away the source of the tears. And so then he says from them, and there shall be no more death. Hey, I guess I won't have to perform any more funerals. No more death, ever. That's it. It's done. What do we fear as much as anything? The frailty of our body. No more death. And then he says this, there will be no more sorrow. No more anxious nights. No more tremendous disappointments. This is truly, you talk about utopia. You talk about a place that's going to be wonderful. Uh, often we refer to the Garden of Eden as a paradise. And what is a paradise? A paradise is a garden of pleasures. This is going to be a paradise. There's going to be no death, and there's going to be no more sorrow. And then he says this, there'll be no more crying. And then he says, the former things are passed away. When it says the former things, the economy of that kind of thing is passed away. Why? Because the curse is lifted. This world, this new earth, is no longer under the curse. What curse? The one we saw in Genesis chapter 3. It's gone. We, the Bible says, this world groans underneath that curse. And we groan with it. But not in this new earth. Hey, amen. I can't, let's just get there right now. Amen. I mean, no more of all this hassle, no more death, no more crying, no more sorrows. And it'll, it'll all be changed. It'll all be passed away. It doesn't exist like that anymore. Look at verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And so we have the idea here that God sitting upon the throne decrees that this is a new beginning. 
I make everything different. It's a new, not reformed, I make all things new. Things are different now. And we can look forward to this, Christians, one day to be with God in this new Jerusalem as the bride of Christ, to walk in tabernacle with God, and he's our God, and he's our, and we'll dwell with him in the pain and the sorrow, and all this is gone. And the voice from heaven says, I make all things new. Wow, that's the decree from the throne. From the omnipotent one, the one that created this world, is in this new heaven and this new earth, making a new earth and a new, what we call a new economy for mankind. We're not talking about economics when we say a new economy. It's a new way. It's a different life. It's hard for us to even conceive. Look at verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write. For, uh, for these words are true and faithful. It's interesting. One commentator I was reading said this, that John at this time probably is sitting there with his jaw on the ground. Here's this new Jerusalem, this new heaven, this new earth, and all the things that he's seen, no more dying, no more crying, no more sorrow, all things are new. And the Lord says to him, write Focus, write this down. Because he's sitting there just like that. Now, we've heard about the new heaven and the new Jerusalem, and I'm preaching tonight, and you aren't near as excited as I am. I tell you what, the more I studied on this, the more I realize it's for me. And this is reality. This is not a fairy tale. This is not Disney World. This is not dreaming and thinking. This is not, I hope it'll be this way. This is spoken from the throne of God. All things are going to be made new, and this is for you. And I tell you, Christians, this ought to get exciting for us. The struggles of this world is not what it's like. This world is not my home. I'm going to have a new home. And Jesus is working on that and preparing that for me. And this is what we're describing here. A new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem where God dwells in tabernacles. Write these words, for they are true and they are faithful. They are truth. They are verifiable and are faithful God. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. What he promises, he will perform. And this is our God. Write these things, for they are true. And they are faithful to what is going to happen. They reflect the truth. They are not exaggerated. They have not been blown up over a period of time. These are, these are very faithful to what God wants us to know. As we sit here in 2020, God wants us to know these are true and faithful words. Look at verse 6. And he said unto me, It is done. That may sound like a small little phrase, but it's similar to what Jesus said in the cross. That it's finished. Aren't we glad when Jesus said that the work of our salvation was finished? Amen. Tell us, here God says, my plan. What plan? The plan from eternity past where he was going to send forth his son, Jesus Christ, and all the things. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when we get to this point, God says, 
It's done. I've done what I've planned. My true and faithful promises have been kept to mankind. Isn't that amazing? And so God is going to tabernacle again. His desire is to tabernacle with man. And much of what we would see way back in the Garden of Eden, we had man innocent, untempted, but now we find tempted man that's returned to God and made a choice to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And now God promises for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. These things are yours. It's done. It's settled. I'll keep my promise. Go to the bank with it. It is done. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. Remember, God is timeless, is he not? God is A and Z. God is the beginning of it all, and God's the end of it all, all in one ball of wrap. And he says, this plan is unfolded from alpha to omega, and it's finished. I was there in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and I'm here at the end. I'm alpha and omega. I am the beginning and the end, and I have finished what I said. I, when, I, when it all started, it is finished. Okay, It's done. And he says, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. What was the problem in the Garden of Eden? There was a tree there. There were two trees. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The other one was the tree of life. Unless they eat of the tree of life, they were cast out of the garden. And so man then, death passed upon all men. But the Lord now says to mankind, I have opened up the water of the fountain of life through Jesus Christ. And all who will drink. Can you think of anything easier than to drink? That's the picture here. Drinking of the, all, it's simple faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ who died for us on the cross. He said, if you want to, all that want to drink of this water of life, it's available. Boy, it was fun to preach that this morning. Jesus Christ, the son of God, he died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. This is what the message to the church is. This is the message to the book of Revelation is ending on all who will can drink, come and drink. And these last chapters keep saying, if, if you're thirsty, come. If you're thirsty, come. And tonight, if you're looking for peace for eternity, come and drink of the water of life. And that water of life is Jesus. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. There's no cost. It's open to all. There's no filter. Red, yellow, black, and white, all are precious in his sight. All the nations of the world, all the peoples of every economic strata, all who will want to drink can come freely. There's no restriction. Verse 7. He that overcometh, and if you remember in the book of the first chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, in each of those seven churches, there was a challenge that they had to overcome. And he that overcame, there were rewards. And in this case, how does a person overcome? They overcome by drinking. 
He that overcometh. So the person that drinks, the person that believes in Jesus Christ, the person that receives that, that fountain of life water, he that overcometh, what happens? Look at it in verse 7. He shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I have brought many messages out of First and Second Corinthians and some other chapters, Ephesians, where we talk about that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Remember some of those messages? And this is sort of referring to this very, this very issue here. He says, if you're a thirst, you can come, you can overcome, and that you will now become a joint heir, and you're going to be my son, and I'm going to be your God. And we're going to be the, called the sons of God for eternity, and we will inherit all things. That's what it says right there in that verse. That's a verification of the other verses in the book of, books of John and all the rest. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that does not have the Son does not have life. And so the question has come to us twice in two services this morning, this evening. Do you rest in this hope? If you, if you have overcome by drinking of this water, if you have received Jesus in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, he said, if you knew who you were talking to, you wouldn't ask for water. You, you'd ask the other way, give me to drink. And tonight I tell you, you can drink of the water of life. I don't know why God has brought this over and over again in the last few weeks for us to consider, but I can't help but wonder if there's somebody in our regular church family that needs to overcome and become a drinker of the water of life tonight. It's not just good enough to know that it's the water of life. The water of life is available. It's free to all that will come. You have to pick it up by faith and drink it. To him that overcometh, he shall inherit all things. I will be their God and they shall be my son. That is literal. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Do we believe that verse? Here's the fulfillment. Amen. If you've never marked this in your Bible, maybe you've never thought to use this, say, let me show you when we all get to heaven, who's going to inherit all things? It's him that overcomes, him that drinks. If you've never used this in soul winning, mark these verses. They're powerful. This is a bright hope over our life. This is God's eternal plan coming from Alpha to Omega, and he says, it's done. And here's the new Jerusalem coming down. Verse 17, he that overcometh shall, verse 7, he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But, oh, what the buts in the Bible. A lot of the buts in the Bible are good buts. I like to take that name. But here's a bad buts. But, there are those that have not overcome. And do you notice here, let me just grab my notes. There are eight different things that are listed in this verse. 
But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part, thinking back to chapter 20 at the very end, the great white throne, shall have their part in the, the lake. What kind of lake? Which burneth with? And brimstone, and this has a name, another nickname. This is what? The second death. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. This is the second death. I like to read Oliver B. Green, an evangelist from the middle 1900s in America. He preached all over the South, thousands and thousands and thousands of people accepted Christ under his ministry. He has a lot of books, a lot of his doctrines right online. I like Oliver B. Green. He's, he's usually, I go study everybody else, go back and read Oliver B. Green. I should have just started with Oliver B. Green. I mean, he's just simple and right down where you and I talk. I mean, he's just right down in very our vernacular that we can understand. And he said, I have a sermon that I preach. And he sort of inserted it in the commentary here. It's called, Your Neighbors If You Go to Hell. I thought, that's an interesting name for a sermon. Who are your neighbors if you go to hell? And here are eight of them, right here. The fearful, the unbeliever, the abominable, the murderer, the fornicator, the sorcerer, the idolater, the liar. Eight neighbors. Now, could you imagine moving into a neighborhood filled with murderers and liars and sorcerers and idolaters and unbelievers and the abominable. Can you imagine moving into a neighborhood like that? But I tell you what, if you die without Christ, that's the neighborhood you're going to live in for eternity. That's the company. Let's just talk about those eight. The fearful is probably the one that as I looked at the list, I said, you know, I had to study that word. What is the fearful? Actually, the literal word fearful here could just as easily be the cowardly. And what the commentators brought forth much is here's the person that knows they should have stepped forward and embraced Christ, but they never trusted God. They were fearful. What is it that keeps a person ultimately from going to heaven? Is the sin of unbelief. And so we find the very first two things. The one that was timid and fearful and cowardly, and he never believed. Maybe you're tonight a person that you've just never had the courage to embrace Christ. Maybe tonight you've never just been willing to step out and take your simple faith and trust the promises of God for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord and you just weren't willing to trust in him. The third one is the abominable. The abominable are people that are filthy, sin-laden people. These are people that are just vile. Murderers, that's pretty explanatory, isn't it? People that are murderers. And you know, one of the people I would put in that, ca in that category are abortionists. I don't care if the baby's in the womb or out of the womb, it's a life. But the murderers. The fornicators, these are all those that have their focus on illicit love and sex. That's what their mind is all based on. And this world is 
tuned into fornication. The sorcerers, these are those that have the spirits of this world. Those that look in the portal onto the other side, they look for the source of power, not to be of God, but anything and everything but God. They're always trying to contact the other side, but not through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They're sorcerers. The idolaters are those that worship other gods other than God. And that would be the heathens, many of the different lands. And it's amazing to me, years ago when we started Westside Baptist Church in Spring Branch, which was a pretty conservative area at that time, and then all of a sudden we began to get a Buddhist temple, a Hindu temple in Spring Branch, and different temples of different gods began to go up on different corners. And I thought, I thought we were a Christian country. And it really became alarming to me, even 30 years ago as a pastor, to see the idolaters. When our church first got started, I, we were right next to a storefront. A Vietnamese couple had a shoe repair shop. And I can remember when I would go in to invite them to come over, I would look up on the shelf right behind them, and up there sat a little jar, and it had two electronic candles. And as I got to know later on, they had escaped out of Vietnam in very precarious boat situations, buried for their life, but they had brought their ancestors in a jar, for that was their gods that they worshipped. And they were to give their life for that little jar. The idolaters and the liars, the detestable people that cannot face the truth of God. And then three other people that are neighbors, those are eight that are listed here, three other neighbors that all would be green listed that you would have in hell, you'd have the devil himself. How would you like to live next to the devil? You say, I already do. No, okay. Uh, the devil, the beast, and who's the third one? the false prophet. What a neighborhood. Fearful, cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, the devil, the beast, the false prophet. But what's the Bible say about them? They shall be cast in the lake of fire. And tonight, without Jesus Christ covering the sins of us all, that's where we will go. Christians don't doubt God. Just as we'd say, it is finished, this is God's promise, this is the paradise, this is that new heaven, new earth, I'm going to dwell with you. Just as literal as we believe that, we believe there's a literal second death, and that's where people will spend eternity that do not embrace God's way of salvation. Verse 9, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, full of the seven last plagues. These are one of these seven very powerful angels, and they come, and they talked with me, saying, Come up thither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And so here is this new Jerusalem. This is the bride. This is the Lamb's wife. This is now referring back to chapter verses 1 and 2. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the holy city, we've already talked about it, it's a holy city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven, and where does it come from? It's source with God. Having the glory of God, and what is the glory of God? The glory of God is his holiness. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, 
even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The very first thing when you see this new Jerusalem coming down is that you notice it's a city filled with light. John said, I've come to bear witness of the light. And Jesus is the Son of God. He is the light of men. And in this new Jerusalem, Jesus still is the light of the world. Amen? And so the very characteristic of this new Jerusalem, it's a city that just dazzles with its lightness. And it tells us here it's a crystal city. It's a city like unto Jasper. And it just, whatever way, maybe you could picture a diamond with all of its facets. But picture this Jerusalem coming down and this light of Jesus Christ being in the center of it is reflected through that city so that it comes down. And what you say is, here comes a lighted city. Have you ever been on an airplane and come in in the evening? And you're flying across the darkness. And if you're like anybody else, most likely you like to get a window seat. And so you're looking over the window, and all of a sudden you see a few little lights, and then off on the horizon you see a large city. Maybe it's Houston coming, or maybe it's Dallas, or maybe it's Chicago, or whatever big city you're coming on. And here it's midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, and as you look, the whole horizon fills up with its light. This is a mini picture of what it's like when we see this new Jerusalem coming down. It is like a diamond in its brilliance, source with the light of Jesus Christ, brilliantly being reflected through the city. This is the very first thing that gets your attention. It's a city of pure light. Verse 12, it had a great wall and high. It had 12 gates, and the gates had 12 angels, And they had their names written thereupon, which are the names of the seven tribes of the children of Israel. Remember, God often deals with his children, the promises that he made to Israel, and then he's made to the church through Jesus Christ. And we find that reflected in verse 13. On east there were three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. Two things we think about this. This makes us think about when the tabernacle dwelt in the midst of the children of Israel, on the north, east, south, and west, they all directed their doors to be towards the tabernacle. And here we find on the north, it's all symmetrically, uh, all these gates are put up. But a second thing that we notice about these gates, it's open in every direction for people to come and go. It's not a prison. It's a wonderful place to come in and out of and to dwell. And we are not encased in this place. This is a place of wonderful joy and reflection for us as Christians. Notice it says on, please, in verse 14. In the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And in the names, and them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. In the New Testament, it tells us that the apostles will be the judge of Jerusalem. The judge of Israel, I'm sorry, in the future. And so here we have the foundation being these very names of these 12 apostles, the 12 different tribes, and it's all integrated. God's plan is coming full focus. Look at verse 15. And he that talked with me had a golden reed. What's a reed? It's a measuring stick. 
we'd say he had a golden yardstick. He had a golden tape ruler. I don't know, you, you, a reed, okay? So it says he had a golden reed, and he measured the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. So he measured the length, the breadth, and the, and the tallness of the wall, and the city lieth four square. What does four square mean? It means it was just as long on one side as it was the other way. It's not pyramid shaped. It is, it is this many feet on this side. It's the same. It's square. It's not rectangular, uh, just generally. It's not a prison shape. It's four square city. It's, and so he measures it. And the length of it is as large as the breadth. It was equal on all sides. And he measured the city with the reed, and he found it to be 12,000 furlongs. That's not our measurement. But if you multiply it all out, that's 1,500 miles on each side. I'll let that sink in for just a moment. Here's a city coming down out of heaven, a new Jerusalem, that's 1,500 miles long. That's the distance between Maine and Florida. That's the distance between New York City and Dallas. That's a long ways. That's a long ways to drive. You just drive 16, 20 hours straight, I mean, going 60, 70 miles an hour to sort of get that, I mean, and you just keep going and going. That's one side of the city. Do you get the idea of the size? Often, I think, when we think of this new Jerusalem coming down, we're thinking, oh, here comes this large city. Maybe it's something like Houston. No, it's like a big, almost as large as the United States of America. 1,500 miles this way, 1,500 miles that way, 1,500 miles this way, 1,500 miles this way. It's a large city where man is going to dwell. And it's a crystal city. It's a city made out of pure gold in a lot of places. And all these crystals and all these foundations. And we're going to read on. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. He measured the city and the wall thereof, verse 17, 144 cubits. So now he's measuring the wall. How tall is this wall? 144 cubits. A cubit's 18 inches. That gives you 216 feet tall. That's just a little taller than somebody in the NBA. You out there, I was a joke. Okay, All right. 216 feet, that's tall. That's taller than the Redwoods. That's, I mean, it's way, it's way up there tall. I mean, it's like getting up one of those skyscrapers in New York City tall. That's the height of the wall around the city, 1,500 miles this way, 216 feet tall, a wall all the way around this city, built on the foundation of the apostles. And there's three gates in each of the sides, so you can come in from any direction. It's available to mankind. Verse 18, And the building of the wall was as it were of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. I tell you, I, I, the most of the gold that you and I are used to is this kind of gold you see in this room right here. But pure gold, you can see right through. Can you imagine a city made out of jasper? A city 1,500 by 1,500 by 216 feet high made out of jasper and pure gold. That's a lot of gold. 
The image for us here, it's literal, but the image of us here is this is a city of pure, absolutely meets every need of mankind. But what do people, they spend this world looking for all the gold and the silver and the precious stones. And here, here it's, it's ours to live in. Verse 19, and the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manners of precious stones. When it says garnished, it just, like, have you ever seen, like, a, a, a nice a ruby, a nice uh, brooch of some sort? And all along the edges of it, it had, like, diamonds and rubies and emeralds, and it's garnished. So here are the walls, that all along the walls, 1,500 miles of the wall, 260, it has just all these rubies and diamonds and all the things that we're going to see listed here. It's an opulent city. Do you remember when God talked to the children of Israel and he said, I have a promised land, the land that floweth with milk and honey, and the cities that are already built, wells that are already dug, and vineyards that are already planted, and grapes that are ready to eat? And you think, this is a city that God, this is a land, a promised land that God has. This is a city that you and I are going to dwell in. There is no lack of anything in this city. This is a beautiful picture. The foundations of the wall were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth was an emerald, the fifth was sardonyx, the sixth was sardis, the seventh was crystallite, the eighth was beryl, the ninth was topaz, the tenth was crystal frosts. Somebody help me with that. Where's my science teacher? Okay. The eleventh was jacinth. The twelfth was an amethyst. I read commentator after commentator, and they tried to try to make these to have some sort of symbolic thing. But almost every commentator, by the time they got done trying to make it into something, they said, this just expresses absolute wealth beyond degree. I was reading an article this week talking about the economic downturn in America and what can we do about it, and it got talking about the Federal Reserve. I'm not trying to get into politics, but it said, what kind of tools does the Federal Reserve, and it started talking about the Federal Reserve has tons of reserves that you and I have. I had no clue what it could do. It has more power than Congress financially. I mean, just read up on the Federal Reserve. It's an independent thing. It's supposed to watch over our jobs and our economy. And it's men that have been appointed there by the president and Congress. And it's supposed to be independent with all these reserves. They have nothing on this. You talk about a Federal Reserve. A city made of pure gold. And all the gemerals, ge ge uh, the gems and emeralds that are here and this is just speaking of God's absolute provision for eternity. There's no want in this city. It's a, it's a city of true paradise. And this is our home. This is the bride of Christ. Look on, please, in verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. One commentator said that had to be quite an oyster. Can you imagine a pearl that great? Every several gate was one pearl, and the street 
of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. And they made much of the fact that it doesn't say the streets. What does it say? Apparently, through this city, one's one major boulevard. If we take the scriptures literally, there is a large street, sort of like you have a grand boulevard, and here runs right through the center of the city, a gold ribbon street, transparent gold. I like what Oliver B. Green said concerning this. He said, and we've all got an address on Main Street. Amen? I've heard, you ever heard some of the songs that say, I'll meet you at the corner of Glory and Hallelujah Avenue? Well, here we talk about this gold street that runs through the city. Verse 22. And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And so here we find another one of our news. We're used to going into a church building. We're used to going to a temple to worship God. We're looking for it to go to some sort of tabernacle where we can find God. But the temple, God is there in our midst and his presence makes the temple. Once again, we can hardly imagine this, to walk and be with God. I saw no temple for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. I'm sure you've heard sermons that talked about this. If you don't like the things that God talks about, you don't like the fact of God's holiness, and you don't like the things that God is, you're sure not going to enjoy heaven. For he is the temple. He is the center of everything. If you don't like to be around him here on this earth, you sure aren't. There's got to be something wrong with your heart. I know I struggle with my flesh. Do you struggle with your flesh? But my flesh does not struggle with this idea. I want to be with God. And a man that does not want or seek the holiness and the pureness of God, there's something wrong with that heart. And I have to wonder, is that heart truly converted? I didn't say we don't struggle with sin and sometimes we want our old flesh that sin, but I know my new nature wants to be with God and to dwell with Him. I wonder tonight, do you desire God? Do you desire to walk with Him and be in fellowship with Him like it is in this new temple and this, in this, in this place where God dwells with us for all eternity? Verse 13, the city had no need of sun, had no need of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ, is the light thereof. Can you imagine a city that doesn't need electric lights? Save on the light bill. Jesus is the light. And that goes right back to what we talked to a little earlier on about John chapter 1, that John said, I am come forth to bear witness of the light. And Jesus is the light of this world. And he is the light of the city for all eternity. 
As we see God, I think of Moses in the Old Testament when he got to go up on the top top of the mountain and, and he got to see the hinder part of the glory of God and God put his hand down and he said, I'm going to get you a little peek to see the just the little reflection, the very tail end of, my, of, of the hinder part of my glory and his face shone for 40 days. Gives us an idea that Jesus and God are light. God is a source of light for this 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 by 1,500 by 260 feet high. He is the light of that city. Is Jesus the light of your life? He wants to dwell in your heart in all of its fullness, and he wants us to be a miniature right now. He lives in the heart of all believers, And he wants to let the light shine out through this human tabernacle. God wants you and me to be a light. We're miniature lights everywhere we go. And we're witnesses. But here he's going to be the light for all eternity of this city. Look at verse 23. And the city had no need of light. Look at verse 24. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth to bring their glory and honor into it. And the idea is that everything is focused on Jesus in this new earth, in this new Jerusalem, in this new heaven. It's all about God. They all bring their glory unto it. Oh, do you remember earlier on in the book of Revelation as you dealt with Babylon and all the people, they brought their merchandise and their sin and all the other things in and out of that city. In this new heaven, in the new, new earth, it's not about a Babylon, it's about a new Jerusalem, and it's all about Jesus. And everybody's going to bring their glory unto that city. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Oh, I brought messages about this, especially when I talk about funerals. One of the things I often do is I'll turn and I'll talk to the people and say, you know, after this funeral's over and all your friends are gone, there's going to be a time where you're going to be sort of hurting. And I'll direct them often to Philippians chapter 4 where it says, being, uh, don't be filled with care, but let all your requests be made known unto God and that he can give you that encouragement and surround your heart. You know the verses I'm talking about. And, and I encourage them that the Lord is there for them in the midst of that darkest night, that he's there at two in the morning when you wouldn't call anybody else. Jesus has no time schedule of night or day. And here in this new city, there is no night. And that night is that dark time where we feel separated from other people. There is no discouragement. There is no sorrow. There is no crying. There is no death. There is no night in this city. For Jesus is truly the light of the world. Amen? And they shall bring their glory and honor of the nations into it, And there shall in no wise enter into it, this city, anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And this tells us then, who are they that are going to dwell in the city? Those whose names are written in the book of life. And how is our name written in the book of life? The day that you and I get saved. 
And this is how I know that you, if you know Christ and I, will live in this city for eternity. What an amazing place to be. No sorrows, no pains, no dyings, no more death. Jesus is the light of the world, all the abundance that, of everything. There's all that you need, and it's the promises of God kept. Alpha and Omega, it is done. What a beautiful, beautiful chapter. A new Jerusalem. We have one chapter left. It's chapter 22. We're not going to discuss it tonight. But it's the highlight. It's the end of the Bible. It's the last chapter in the book. It's, it's a book full of a lot of promises, and it's a book of calling. And can I, can I challenge you? If you got an unsaved friend, would you try to get him here next Sunday night? For this is the chapter that says five times, come. Come. And you know, that's the way the Bible ends. It ends with God keeping all of his promises, and he says, come and drink of the water of life. Come. Do you have a friend that needs to drink of this water? Would you not like your whole family to be living in this city? Let's pray and ask God this week to give us favor with somebody, to bring them underneath the gospel that we're going to preach by God's ability next Sunday night as we end the book of Revelation with the idea, come to God's completed program. And it's open to all. But error before we do that, let's ask ourselves this abiding question. Have you drunk of that water? Will you live in the city? Are you sure? Are you at rest in your soul? Can you put your head on the pillow tonight? And if you woke up tomorrow in eternity, where would you be? Would you be in verse 7 or would you be in verse 8? Verse 7 are those that have their name as inheritors in the book of life. Their God is God and they inherit as sons of God. Verse 8 is where the fearful and the unbelievers and the abominable and that whole list shall be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Where would you be? Where would you be? I want to be in this new Jerusalem. And by Jesus' promises, I will be there. Where will you be? This is not figurative. This is not cartoon character made up. It is done. It is faithful and true. Write it down for them to see. Take it to the bank. I, John, saw it. Let's bow our heads, please. Heavenly Father, I pray tonight that you would help us to live not in our own confident cockiness, but to live in the promises of your scripture and Father, I beg and pray that if there's someone in our church family, and Lord, this is family here tonight. If there's one here that does not have that confidence in their heart that they are among those that are in the book of life, may their heart tremble. May the fear of God fall upon their soul. May they lose, Father, any sense of self-confidence, may they 
come under conviction. May they be pricked in their heart and may they come to Jesus. May they come to the light tonight. In Jesus' name, with our heads bowed, I wonder how many here without any doubt in your heart, not because you're a good or bad person, but because you're in the promises of God, you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, it's settled, you know it, you're confident of that promise has been made and made to you personally. If you know that, could you raise your hand as a testimony? I have Jesus in my heart. I know it. Okay, hands back down. You're here tonight and you say, Pastor Butts, I can't raise my head any longer. I am not sure if I died, I don't think for sure I would be in this new Jerusalem. And Pastor, I need to get my sins settled and I need Jesus in my heart. No more fooling around. It's time for me to do business with God. Pray for me, Pastor. Is there someone tonight? Slip your hand up. Pastor, I need to do business with God. I need to make sure my name is written in God's book. Pray for me tonight, pastors, or someone like that. Just slip your hand up. It's time for me to do business with my God. Well, if there's somebody here tonight and you say, Pastor, as you preach tonight of those and even mentioned next week getting somebody here, there's some people that I sincerely care for. They're very precious to me. And I'm pretty, pretty, pretty confident that they don't know my Savior. And pastor, as you preach tonight, my heart burns in my heart that they would be neighbors with those that you listed in verse 8. And they'd have part of that second death, that lake of fire. And pastor, maybe I've been too timid. Maybe I've lost my vision for them. But I need to get stirred up and tonight my heart is refocused on an individual or a group of people and I'd like you to pray that I won't lose my burden until they get saved. Pray for me. Is there someone like that tonight? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Yes, pray for me. There's somebody I care for very much and I need to pray. Pray for me tonight, Pastor, that I won't lose my focus until they come to Christ. Pray for me. Amen. 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 I wonder if there's somebody here tonight and you say, Pastor, you're laying out a challenge to our church to try to get somebody out next Sunday night that needs to hear this message of come. And already I can think of somebody. I can't imagine they would come, but, but God's grace, miracles can happen. But I'm focused already on somebody I'm going to try to get out next week. Pray that I'll have favor with them. Is there somebody like that tonight? Lord, may you help us to be a believing group of people. And Father, we thank you for the promises of this book, this book of Revelation. Blessed are they that hear and do these things. Father, may you stir our hearts up to be lights where we live. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Tonight, I don't feel like I should give an invitation. The invitation is for you to go and live for Christ. God bless you.